Hello, my Lonely Hour listeners. This is your host, Julia, and I'm here to tell you that we have a brand new season that you can find on Stitcher Premium. Just go to stitcher.com slash lonelyhour to sign up now. You'll get access to ad-free episodes and archives of some of your other favorite shows, as well as exclusive bonus episodes of hit podcasts, early access to new releases, and over 300 stand-up comedy albums. You'll also have the option to donate to The Lonely Hour, which is the best way to support it. Thank you for helping us keep this show going. This is The Lonely Hour, produced by Pale Groove. I'm your host, Julia Bainbridge. I'm an editor and a writer, mainly about food. But I also have a lot of feelings, loneliness being one of them. I want to explore that feeling because it's pervasive, but the literature on it is not. Each episode of The Lonely Hour is going to focus on a particular topic, whether it's a community or a profession, an age group, or an activity that seems to arouse feelings of loneliness or aloneness. That could be mental illness, for example, or it could be social media's effect on us. It could even be motherhood. The idea is to catalog tidbits on this very human feeling, because we all feel lonely sometimes. I want to explore how we feel it. Here's a quote from the late David Bowie from 2000. Drinking even one glass would kill me. I'm an alcoholic, so it would be the kiss of death for me to start drinking again. My relationships with my friends and family have been so good for so many years now. I would not do anything to destroy that again. It's very hard to have relationships when you're doing drugs and drinking, for me personally anyway. Those words illustrate the kind of isolation that can come along with substance abuse. Gerardo Gonzalez is the chef at El Rey restaurant in New York City. He comes from a family of people who struggle with addiction, and he himself has toyed with sobriety over the years for just that reason. I was blessed with a very uh, <laughs> outgoingly, outgoing yet addictive family. So uh-huh. um, just mainly I've had relatives who passed away from alcoholism. There's been a lot of drugs. Um, gambling is very big in my family. And I think to the extent um, it has been very um, hard to deal with and kind of accept or, mm. or growing up with that. It's always been visible growing up. And, um, you know, there's just a little bit less of the moderation mm-hmm. on per- one particular side of the family. Um, but it seems to affect the males even more so. Hmm which I'm not really sure what that is, but it has me more concerned then because if it's something that is genetically predisposed or if it's just kind of like a conditional thing, either way, it's something that's been pretty apparent in my life. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever talk to those people about how addiction could be lonely making, like those people who were struggling with it in your family? Because I know in an email that we were sending or that you sent me, you know, before this, you said it's interesting because there's a certain loneliness associated with addiction, um, you know, and one that's almost opposite that comes with sobriety. But as far as the loneliness associated with addiction, is there anything yeah, you were I mean, referencing in particular? Yeah, I guess I've kind of witnessed like firsthand um, relatives who like slowly withdrew from the family, but mm-hmm. in a way that was, um, I mean, it was always very self-destructive, but it, it was kind of apparent within the family so it wasn't hiding away and disappearing there was a, there was a lot of that but I've, there's also been like in the middle of a, a large close family people kind of withdrawing within themselves and 
getting deeper and deeper into that addiction and um it's been hard for my family's sake it's just a matter of i don't think it's necessarily denial but it's really kind of understanding that you can't necessarily help somebody until they're ready to kind of help themselves Mm -hmm. like you can provide support and you can be like hey i'm here for you but at a certain point when the person is so self-destructive you kind of have to step back and let them run their course because otherwise you're gonna kind of get involved in that like destructive energy right right i mean and it's so hard because in some cases if it runs its course it's that rock bottom is going to be it could be death, death or, it can be yeah. incarceration, it can be a lot of things. Okay. So, yeah, tell me about your own <clears throat> experience and when you first thought maybe you had a problem and well, okay, so what your activity was like. There, It's a lot of interesting things and it kind of like um, ties in with, I think, social anxiety. If, mm. if there's kind of like a base um, or if there's something underneath the surface that I think it kind of all stemmed from. Um, and how I've kind of dealt with that in the past, um, I would say I was very, very shy growing up. Um, and then something got in me and I just like left my hometown at 17. I've told you this and like Mm -hmm. traveled around and lived abroad and like met people and, and it kind of seemed to go away. But then whenever I would go back, it would just kind of resurface in this way. So then... I when think you would go back home? When I would go back home, it would kind of resurface. And um, I just and found... home again, for people who don't know, is San Diego. San Diego, right? yeah. I eventually moved to San Francisco, and I was pretty young when I moved there. And that town is kind of a very heavy drinking town. And I think it's interesting when you look at certain cities that kind of have that, their own personality, where it's just mm. like very alcohol-driven. I kind of imagine like San Francisco, New Orleans, New York to an extent... But San Francisco to me was a very much a day drinking kind of culture where you would just kind of walk out the door, run into somebody, go to the park and like grab a 40 or, and we were all like young. We were just like kids and, um, yeah. How old? So I was 19 or 20 when I moved to San Francisco and, um, being on my own, um, I think it just became like a social lubricant and then it just became more and more so. And then. Uh, the thing with that is, you know, when you're using it as kind of like a social, a way to like make you feel more social, then you reach a certain point where you're like, Ugh, am I like um, being obnoxious? Am I being um, not annoying, but I guess just like an idiot for being like so drunk? Because it makes or, like, you loose. Yeah, it makes you too loose or something yeah, like that. Yeah. So then that's all common things that everybody goes through whether it's like they go out they have a couple drinks they drink too much they experience like the effects of regret or like oh did i say that or did i really do that kind of thing the next day everybody kind of goes through that but and that actually it's worth noting is a really lonely feeling (laughs) it is yeah i mean i've woken up and that that anxiety when you think back on you look back over your texts you (laughs) think about what you might have said and you are you feel really alone in in that because it was it's your fuck up it is and you have to Um, you have to um realize that there's that part of you that um however whatever reason why it happened whether you felt like kind of like up against the wall or you were just way loose mm -hmm. looser than you would have been normally and um yeah i mean that can be a very isolating experience when Mm -hmm. you're like i have i had no control over myself like physically or mentally 
Um, but for me, I think eventually what that kind of led to was just like overly compensating and uh, drinking quite heavily, especially when I was in San Francisco and uh, the loneliness of addiction that you kind of feel when, you know, you're just kind of in your room and there's a lot of things that kind of got tied into it. And it's kind of interesting when you're young like that and you just connect things. I think I mentioned um, creativity and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, I was like painting and and drawing and doing a lot of photography then. But um, the two like drinking alcohol and creating started to come more and more frequently to the point where it, they were almost like dependent on each other. Mm. And I realized that and I saw that as a crutch, essentially. It was kind of like um, an excuse. Like if I did something really amazing, I was like, oh, I need alcohol to like l- make myself creatively lucid and kind of like loose. Or if it turned out really shitty or horrible, I could be like, well, I was drunk. So whether it is or whether you've justified that it is a necessary thing for you to be able to do kind of basic things like create art, which is something that you like doing, then that that's a problem, right? It's like, it shouldn't be like coffee. No, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and some people even consider coffee a drug and sort of take that out of True. their mornings. You know, if you start getting dependent on it and you feel sluggish without having coffee, then yes. it's like, ooh, this is this is a, a drug. It's a chemical that's that. Well, I mean, that, that's anyway. all, I think that's all kind of relative though. It's because, hmm. you know, I've worked, uh, I think I mentioned this too. I worked at a coffee shop next to a halfway house one time and this was in San Francisco In San Francisco, yeah. and it's just, we would just see it. It's like people that gave up drugs and alcohol were supplementing it with a lot of coffee, with a lot of sugar, and mm-hmm. they all seem to be all sex crazy. And like, <laughs> it's just this weird process of, um, addiction where there's that loneliness of addiction and then it brings you to like the loneliness of sobriety and you're trying to fill a void somehow by picking up on like creating new addictions Mm -hmm. or or i mean that's what everybody always says it's like sometimes it's not uh necessarily the alcoholism that's the problem it's the things underneath the surface that kind of are the real issue or the real underlying issue I guess what I'm saying is like one day I was like, I can't, I like, I don't want this anymore. Right. Cause you were bored because you were concerned it was an inherited issue. Yes. Um, it was going down a very dark path Yeah, and a, like a very dark path. Um, and so then what did that look like? You just like cold Turkey stopped drinking or well, no, the funny thing is, and I don't really believe in like running away from your problems or like blaming it on a city and I'm not blaming it on San Francisco because I think um, it was very formative. And like I said before, like maybe that was an experience that I had to go through, mm-hmm. but I was like, I have to get out of this town for one. It's just like, it's a very small town. And in a way, like I knew that I wanted to kind of change, um, my patterns of behavior, mm-hmm. but I kind of felt like it'd be really hard to do that in a small place where everybody kind of knows what well, you already have like reputations built. I just felt like I'd be confronting the past repeatedly, like either by passing a bar where I wasn't allowed in there, even though I didn't want to go in there, but it's just having that visual Mm -hmm. reminder every day of like how far you've gone away from like what you want. So your choice to be sober is what led you to leave San Francisco. Yeah. In a way, in a a lot of ways, I think at the time I wasn't like, I'm going to go sober, but it was like, I got to get out of the city. And the day after I did, I went sober for about three to four years. I mean, certain things where it's like, 
you go after work and you have a drink with your coworkers, mm-hmm. or at the end of the shift you celebrate or commiserate about a service with mm-hmm. like a shot usually. And um, I mean, I didn't abstain from all drugs, but I also wasn't doing like heavy. I've, I've never that was been less like the issue. yeah, I was never yeah. like really into drugs. So like. Um, I don't know. Occasionally at the end of the night, if everybody was doing a shot just to feel kind of connected, it was a joke, but I would do like a whip it with everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because it's funny, but yeah. And there was like, it was a bonding moment, but that's because otherwise I would have been kind of off to the side while everybody's like, or I'd be cheering with like giving a cheers with water, which is like awesome. Like there was things I had to confront too, like, um, my creativity in a lot of ways dried up the moment I went sober like I couldn't paint I couldn't draw I couldn't do anything as far as that went and I think but just at the beginning right you kind of work through I kind of did but it still was like it wasn't like it was before Hmm. that's for sure and that was something that I had to um be it's something that I had to accept I, I wonder if like maybe I went too deep down that path where the association was just like too high mm-hmm. but I, I would try it but it would just take me a lot longer and I would get a little bit more frustrated with mm-hmm. it um with the results or something like that where I'm like right. oh this isn't this is good but it's not like perfect kind of thing and eventually I worked through that and I can I have gotten back into it but it's still to me not the same as it was before however I did focus my attention on other things one was cooking and just being really observant about that and dining out and being really absurd about like hospitality and like for me being sober is all about confrontation and it's about accepting things either within yourself or outside of yourself and it's a really amazing process and I think that loneliness is actually in a way a positive thing because you're accepting the boredom and you're like, well, I'm fucking bored right now. What am I going to do? I can watch TV. I can lay around. After a couple of days, you're not going to want to keep on doing that. Right. And as opposed to like, I need to get out. Like, I need to go out. And or face myself, you know, yeah, some Then issues. it is what it is. <clears throat> what you're doing is you're, procrast- you're not procrastinating on your feelings. You're confronting them as they happen. Somebody really close to me um, was addicted to drugs and they were actually dealing drugs and mm-hmm. um, methamphetamines in particular. And they went to jail, got out, and were was clean for like 10 years. And I would always ask him, nothing loaded, but just like, how was it? What was it like? That's one thing that I've never, ever dealt with. Because mm-hmm. I've seen it at like a young age, so I'm just like... That's the one thing I was like, never even experiment with. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, obviously. And um, the loneliness that he felt in sobriety was kind of like, sorry, this like normalcy in, he was like working out a lot. He had a really big TV. He owned a house. He was married. Yet he wasn't like, satisfied in that and I can tell he romanticized a little bit his life when he was in addiction and that whole like I don't know if whether it was the thrill of being like a drug dealer or Mm -hmm. 
um, being kind of like high ranking mm-hmm. as far as that goes. Um, it's like flashy. Flashy, yeah. It was just yeah. like a very flashy lifestyle. Um, but I could tell that he, despite being like, he was constantly surrounding himself with people and always wanted people over. And I think there was kind of a loneliness in that sobriety in that sense where it was... Um, like a longing for his former life in a way. Yeah. Even though the, he The excitement. Was, the excitement. Yeah. And I think that's kind of um, something that a lot of people have to confront too. It's, it's different than we live in New York City. We live in a city. But when you're living in a suburb or the monotony of that kind of lifestyle mm-hmm. of sobriety can be very overwhelming i'm very fortunate i have a lot of stimulants around me i have like amazing art amazing music amazing food Mm -hmm. that i can use as outlets over here and um i remember like very vividly talking to him about that and then towards the end of the 10 years like he just got slowly like i could see things like patterns i would like he would hang out at the local dive bar and then he would bring all the people from the local dive bar to his house and then his house became like a party house and then they were all you know smoking weed openly and drinking a lot um and then eventually he got back into that lifestyle and i'm not saying that was all like a gateway but i think there was something very serious about that kind of loneliness in sobriety and not having that connection. I, I don't think he went fully sober. Like he was still drinking, but for everybody, it's like a different experience. Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and I think the connections that he felt while on drugs or while in that lifestyle was a little bit more enticing to him than the connections he was feeling. You said to me before this, you know, before this session that at a certain point, the loneliness and stress of starting and running a business got the best of me. And I ended up back to smoking cigarettes and drinking. So did drinking in that sense, you know, make you feel less lonely? Is it like company? You know, I mean, what did it it do for you? It's company. It makes you turn off parts of your brain, honestly, Mm -hmm. where you can not worry or stress out. 24 hours a day. I see. Yeah. It was, it was kind of one of those things it's, where it's like, an inhibitor. Yeah. And it's a sort of depressant in the sense that it, it helps you fall asleep. And, um, honestly it was, it wasn't until like the last hour and a half that I was awake, essentially that I would start drinking. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it was kind of a way to just like, I'm going to have a couple glasses of wine and then go to sleep this decision to go sober again, you said you're, you seek that clarity and loneliness I experienced when I went sober before. So what did you, what did you mean by that? Like, why is loneliness something you would seek out? Because I think it's a matter of like having an internal dialogue or reflection of kind of what I said before, which is accepting things. I mean, it's all... But is that loneliness or is that like just introspection and alone time? You know, because... Loneliness, I think, you know, is is defined by it's the, it's the sadness that comes along with a feeling of isolation. It's not, you know, it's different than solitude or um, me time or, you know, other ways of being. Loneliness is not exactly aloneness. No, Loneliness that's true. is a sad feeling about your loneliness. That's true. Um, but I kind of connect them. I think mm-hmm. they are both processes that, like, that you go through. 
and there are like the loneliness or the sadness that you feel where you're like you're going home and you're like you're not going out and you're just going home and you're like you want to feel more of a connection towards somebody like in a more mm-hmm. tangible way that still exists mm-hmm. but it's really yeah kind of like relishing no not like I'm well, it alone. exists but you're you're it's a fleeting thing and you're okay with your decision at large so if with that comes some feeling of loneliness you're a better healthier person when you don't drink and don't partake in some of those activities is that what you're saying yes because i think ultimately when you do find that connection with somebody like out of this it'll be a lot more sort of considered and yeah and the connection that you have will be a lot greater so going through that lonely sad time and embracing it in this weird way instead of like running away from it through drugs or alcohol Mm -hmm. then when you do find that connection because i mean it does get hard sometimes especially in new york when you're dating and um you tell somebody right away like oh i'm not drinking (laughs) either way and they're like uh okay it depends on the person but i've been on dates before where they're like a if i say something then they're like oh great awesome thanks or if i don't say anything three drinks in they're like you're not drinking are you and i'm like no i don't drink kind of thing so um and how did you feel like did that not result in a second date or sometimes it's sometimes like um but that's what i mean like when it was an issue for them did you feel sad about it or is it like if it's going to be an issue for them then you're not really interested i mean sometimes yeah if, if you were really interested in that person and i don't think it necessarily had to do with them drinking and you not drinking, but it just maybe had to do with something like you're not on the same, like, wavelength. Reina Zalonki is a licensed marriage and family therapist. Substance abuse majorly affects personal relationships, and healing both of those things is largely what Reina's work is about. Substance use and abuse uh, has a has a big impact on relationships. You know, one of the old sayings is that um, one's greatest love affair is with uh, a substance, because in a lot of ways, um, substances are consistent. They're reliable. Um, they are effective in a way that relationships um, don't always feel. Um, consistent and stable. And so substances end up filling a void in many ways, um, a soothing, comforting void where um, relationships are more complicated and they don't always fill that void. And so a lot of the work that I do um, in working with individuals who are trying to you know, remove substances from their life or have a different relationship with substances is really looking at the other relationships in their life and kind of strengthening and breaking breaking old patterns, old kind of negative cycles in relationships in order to have um, positive connection, connections that are soothing and comforting um, in a way that's really, you know, something something that's really hard to accomplish without a third third, uh, third perspective. So where does that lack of connection often come from? I mean, um, you know, the show of course is about loneliness. Like I think about loneliness and addiction and, and what comes to mind f- for you. Um, how, how do, in your experience do addicts experience loneliness or experience like a, a kind of vacancy, um, 
that they're looking to fill with the substance? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's so great about um, this topic and this show is that loneliness is really not talked about enough, you know, and and it's not that um, it's not that relationships are, you know, that people are having like poor, bad relationships. It's just that people aren't connecting in a way that's um, helpful and soothing for them. You know, loneliness cannot comes from just not just being a single person, but it can come from being in a relationship where there's misattunement. Um, Sue Johnson, who is a kind of um, famous therapist who kind of founded this idea on attachment, um, attachment and, and the way in which we can rebuild relationships through a certain framework, talks about good relationships come from kind of doing a tango dance where you are attuned to one another. And oftentimes, you know, when you aren't connecting with people, um, you use substances in many ways as your form of connection. Um, and many of the reasons why, you know, 12-step and AA programs work is because human bonds can oftentimes replace the bond of a substance and um, provide that sense of kind of fulfillment and support. Yeah. And what was it you said um, to me before this? What was it? The opposite of uh, addiction isn't sobriety, it's connectedness. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The opposite, in my mind, the opposite of substance use, the opposite, opposite of addiction is not sobriety, right? The opposite of addiction is connection because, you know, there's a lot of shame that connects to substance use and shame grows in isolation. Um, and if we look at even like the justice system, the way that you know, individuals are treated when they are struggling with substances is they're usually isolated or there's a punitive measure that's taken. Um, and, you know, we know that shame kind of dies with love and connection. And so when you build the connections in people's life and you kind of look at their support system and you strengthen that support system, oftentimes um, the, the thirst for substances kind of is quenched in a lot of ways. Mm. Yeah, I've seen it play out in two ways. Like there's a feeling of loneliness at the beginning and that, that, you know, as you said, it may be due to, I don't know, childhood traumas or, you know, some, some, something that led to a kind of lack of connectedness in these people. So like social anxiety or what have you. And then there's the isolation when you're in the throes of addiction. Like, like you said, you know, I've heard the substance being referred to as the one true love and you'll kind of do anything to protect it even if it means losing other valuable human relationships um does that ring true to you and i don't do you have any specific examples um of of this from your um your work i think you know when you talk about um you know childhood traumas and and i think that that's a you know big a big kind of place to go with someone who's kind of looking at someone's history and past. But if you think about like how you function in this world and your sense of self and your sense of your ability to kind of overcome challenges and navigate the world, it comes from primary attachment. It comes from having positive connections in your life help you feel kind of adequate and worthy. And so if you don't have a model or a framework or there's been a, a kind of a big tear, you know, a, a moment of abandonment, it's hard to know what to bring into your relationship, how to have certain expectations, how to develop a healthy or kind of a connected um, relationship when you don't have that framework. And so I've 
worked with a lot of individuals who um, really have been in relationships that are misattuned for quite some time, which has really, you know, led to an addiction in many ways. You know, maybe the addiction was present before the relationship, but the disconnection in the relationship kind of fed the addiction. And once someone, you know, decides on one hand to all to get to get sober, to, to work on a program and to kind of look at their relationship with substances while also building in healthy relationships. They're coming in, like I have one uh, a male individual who's brought his wife in and the two of them realized that for so many years while they live together and raise a family, they haven't really been attuned. Um, so how do you talk about feeling lonely and feeling vulnerable with someone when it's not something you're used to. It's not something you've been taught. Healing those things, both the addiction and the relationships that have suffered from it, um, you know, that, that's mainly what you work on in your private practice. And what are some of the, the major steps that need to be taken to get healthy again? Well, the first step is identifying the cycle, right? Every relationship has, you know, I always say, no matter how complicated someone walks in the door saying, well, my story is really complex. You know, our story is complex. It's usually actually pretty simple. That is human beings, our needs and our desires are not that complicated. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to understand that there's just missing pieces, right? That a similar cycle, it's the same argument that plays out in million different ways, but the fundamental pieces are just not there. The sense of safety, the sense that the other person is there for them. And so identifying the cycle, what is that argument that plays up um, is the first step. And then the other step is really changing that cycle. And part of that happens in session. You know, part of that is someone really being able to be vulnerable, express their needs, and then experience the other person as safe and as loving so that it can encourage them to be vulnerable moving forward. What about stopping the cycle of the addiction? I mean, I another thing I wanted to bring up is like shame and addiction, how isolating that can be. And I, I imagine it would be hard to get, um, you know, an addict who feels shameful about it in a room with his or her partner to really, to really open up and try to connect. I mean, this is... Well, a lot of what I talk about is more the thirst, right? Is more kind of what is what is driving the need for the substance, you know? And how can we look at those pieces and be kind of loving and supporting um, of each other as individuals in a couple, um, and and remove the shame, you know? Where does the shame come from? Is that something that came from the past? But kind of unpacking that shame and kind of changing it is a key piece. Um, because it's it's definitely something that keeps addiction secret, and it also it keeps addiction around. Um, shame is one of these kind of this piece that that we bring in from society into our own framework around substance use, and and a lot of that also comes from kind of diagnosis. You know, so needing to give someone a diagnosis oftentimes creates a stigma. And so I try and move away from that a little bit and look at people from more of a holistic perspective. Yeah. What do you suggest for the addict in the relationships um, in terms of connectedness? Like, is there a certain kind of help and connectedness that can only come from those who are in the addict community or, you know, a way in which a sober partner might not be able to like help fill um, whatever, you know, void the addict has been filling with substance for the past however many years? 
Yeah. You know, one of the things I always I, I find interesting is I think relationships these days hold more capital than they ever used to. You know, we used to live in communities. We used to raise children with neighbors and aunts and uncles. And, you know, it was just it was a much more connected life. You know, now we're, we have social media and we're on email. And so really our partner is everything. Right. It's our best friend. It's our therapist. It's our motivator. And you know, it's important to look at how much capital are we putting on that relationship and how can we also bring in the community, you know, bring in other parts of um, our life in order to, to build in more connections so that this relationship can have a certain space um, but not hold as much pressure. So to, to kind of really more directly answer your question, I do think that as an addict, you know, or someone who's trying to, to be sober, I really look at other other forms of connection and not just for the addict, but for the couple. You know, where is their, their friend group and their family? And if they have kids, you know, where are they getting other help from? Because um, it really is lonely, I think, in a lot of ways, not just around addiction, but people's struggles are kept secret. Um, and shame breeds in secrecy. So how do we start building in community and support systems around couples and, you know, people struggling with addiction. Yeah. What about sobriety? Do those in recovery who have chosen to eschew drugs and alcohol experience loneliness too? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, alcohol and substances are so pervasive in our culture. And in some ways, they really are such a social lubricant. I mean, we know, chemically speaking, that substances minimize our inhibitions. And so we are effectively more kind of loose and more confident in certain ways when we're around people. And if we haven't really developed skills to kind of really feel comfortable, even in the uncomfortable moments, um, or to acknowledge the uncomfortable moments, then it can feel really lonely in early recovery or in sobriety, because it's it's hard to feel comfortable. And because of that, I see a lot of my, you know, clients who are in early, early sobriety kind of pulling away, because it's it's tough to socialize when it's a big part of our culture. The topic of loneliness is is a topic that needs to be um, needs to be pursued more often. It's a big part of what happens inside the room of therapy. But if that would happen more, you know, day to day, or when you're meeting people for coffee or for dinner, um, we can build more genuine connections. And I think in genuine connections, we can kind of remove shame and remove a lot of maladaptive coping mechanisms. Um, yeah. So what are some examples of addressing that in the day to day? You mean just like having loneliness be a word that we use more and so it doesn't have the kind of stigma around it? And, and also when you talk about genuine connections, what is that? What does that look like? What's a genuine connection versus a non-genuine connection? A genuine connection is really is, is telling someone you need them. You know, a genuine connection is at the end of a long day of work instead of going to a bottle of wine is saying to a friend, I don't want to be alone tonight, right? I, I want to, I want to, I'm feeling down and I need you. Or to that partner, you know, in our culture where there's so much emphasis on work, like, can you leave early, right? Asking the questions that we don't always ask because, um, we're just afraid to show the world that we're struggling. And so genuine connection is really opening up in those moments, not just the moments when we're feeling good. Yeah. Um, 
so if not in therapy, what, I mean, what's another way to encourage people to do that? I mean, one is listening to hear you, listening to you say that on this podcast, (laughs) but, um, you know, how else, how else are people out there keeping that in mind or, you know, uh, working better to, to sort of activate that? Well, I think one of them is just practicing, right? Practicing what does it feel like when you express your needs and your needs are met? And can you imagine what that would feel like if you did it more? You know, and and looking at the people that you surround yourself with, because oftentimes we don't realize that we're, you know, there's toxicity in our life or there are people that are not not meeting our needs. And what does it mean to have real friendships? You know, maybe it means looking at your hobbies and your passions and finding people who are more aligned with them. Um, but these are pieces of our life while we're so focused on our careers, you know, we don't take the time to kind of do an inventory around our world in terms of our community. Um, and so I encourage people to really look at that piece and to look at how they can strengthen their relationships. Um, from a more like genuine, real place. Anne Bainbridge, now sober, has dealt with alcoholism for much of her life. She's also my mother. Why do you think you you became an alcoholic? Like, of course, you know, it's a hereditary thing, um, so it's part of your makeup, but was there kind of a catalyst at all in, in your life, you think? Uh, I don't think there was a specific catalog, but of course there is that hereditary factor. And there have been lots of studies about that, but I've never seen a conclusive one. But one can observe this in generations of families. Um, For me, as you know, I I grew up in a rather demanding academic household. And although my brothers and I were very successful at these things, I always felt that never quite good enough. And looking back, I can see that I was always an anxious person. And as I grew into adulthood, there's the, I never knew that I was depressed and anxious. Never, never until I was, you know, five years ago. Um, I just felt that everyone else handled all the challenges and difficulties and, and fears of life much better than I did, which of course made me feel even worse about myself. I think that I, I lived in a kind of vortex of low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and, uh, when I was younger into really uh, adulthood, um, I, I just felt that everybody handled life better than I did, and, and that increased my low self-esteem. Yeah. Did you... Um... But as, as far as a catalyst, you, I forgot that. Um, I just think as I grew older, I became more depressed. Now, everyone in this life has his fair share of losses and trauma and tragedies. And I had some, many which um, affected my fear, my fearful outlook on life. Some of them were, were fairly frightening. I mean, little things that happened. I broke my nose horribly, so I always thought I was ugly when I was a child. When I was 11, as you know, I became very, very seriously, I mean, deathly ill. And I was ill for pretty much a year. So I was... Um, not allowed to, had no, no self-immune systems. So I was not allowed to play with people. I was in isolation for several months. And then when I did go back to school, I was in a little tiny room upstairs off the teacher's room, and I could wave out the window at my friends, um, but I had no real interaction with friends for virtually nine, ten months. And, and that, you were how old? 11? 11. 11. God, talk about isolation and loneliness. I mean... 
It was. It was very, very lonely, and I had to sort of develop this imaginary inner world where I, you know, I wrote stories and all that kind of thing. But um, I did go back into school, and I, I, I want to reassure your your readers that I basically had so much happiness and joy in my life, and I think a lot of that came from being your mother. But that that's down the road, I guess. There were. Um, bad things that happened to me. I was raped with a gun in my mouth, which makes one always ever vigilant, always looking over your, I mean, I still do. I feel sick, but I still do. I'm very careful. I lost my really beloved younger brother, the uncle you never met, in a horrible tragedy. And uh, he'd always been my baby. And so that was a huge loss. And it was terrible to watch my parents go through that just horrible suffering. And I lost another friend that had been sort of the, the love of my early life um, in tragic So, th- you know, things happen to people. And I don't think my story is any more damaging than many people's, but it made me more and more anxious, depressed. And at some point, I began to put a Band-Aid on it, and the Band-Aid was alcohol. It was readily available. It took the edge off things. It made me feel um, strong and secure for a while, confident. And it, the more I began to depend on that, this is this is an old story. Right. The more, or the more I needed it and, you know, leaned on it, as it were. Yeah. You talked about you, how you felt that other people dealt with stress or, you know, whatever else, um, better than you, or you had the perception that they did. Is this because either in your family or at the, at the time, which I guess, I don't know, in your young adulthood, let's say it's the sixties, seventies, um, was this, were people just not talking about this stuff as much? Like, can you, what was the landscape like both in your own world, but in the world at large for talking about these kinds of issues? Like, you know, you mentioned the rape, like it's this, was it, well, that, did you that, did you not get to talk to people about that no, or you know I never, I never talked to anybody 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 yeah for, for decades no and I'm probably it had happened today you know to to the younger me I would have had immediate access right but it was still a science of uh, blame the victim that sort of thing and I did not have very kind treatment by the police whom I did call at all. Not at all. Right. So I, you know, that's one of those things you bury underneath, and but it adds to your lack of self-esteem and to your fear, to your sort of contramundi attitude towards the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm surprised that you, you said that you know, on, on this show, because I know about it. I, I mean, I knew this happened to you only recently. Um, but I didn't know that you were at the point where you're comfortable with, you know, talking about it publicly. Well, we're not particularly comfortable in having things broadcast, but who wants to have their, their sort of inner achings broadcast? However, <laughs> that's what I'm in the business of doing. I'm I guess. Long out there. Uh, <laughs> asked me to think about this and speak um, frankly about it. And so that's what I'm trying to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, mom. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. We'll get back to the, to the alcohol stuff. Um, mm-hmm. 
A study linking loneliness and addiction reported, and I'll quote here, loneliness is recognized as a contributing, maintaining, and poor prognostic factor in the development of alcohol abuse. Further, it's recognized as an essential risk factor in all stages of alcoholism. Various studies have demonstrated that lonely people with heavy drinking are more vulnerable to alcohol-related problems. Um, The reasons attributed to this are due to lack of social support and distinct perceptions of community pressure. Um, you know, does this ring true for you? Some of what you've already said shows that it does, but you know, what, what do you say to that? Um, I say, absolutely. There can, I don't know a single alcoholic who is not also lonely unless he's so over the edge that he doesn't know what's going on. And I felt in this triangular vortex of, um, so low self-esteem and, uh, what the things I wanted to say, loneliness and dependence eventually. And looking back now, I can see it's like a downward cyclone. I would begin to get depressed and then I would begin to isolate. And as you isolate, you become more lonely, you become more depressed. It just feeds on itself round and round and round. Yeah, I mean, I remember at its worst, like you spent a lot of time inside the house. Like, you know, when I was at school, you'd be there, um, you know, sometimes all day alone. Like, did did you did you feel that acutely then or were you not like, you know, with it enough to know how you felt? Like what was what was going on in, in the throes of it? You know, what did you feel like? In the throes of it, there was a feeling of just utter desperation with no way out and that, of course, beefed up that self-loathing, which I still have today, but I've learned to maybe put it in perspective. But yes, I felt lonely, and I, I hated myself that I couldn't, that I did not have the strength to look this thing in the eye and get help at that point. Yeah. So it just, it just constantly made it worse and worse and worse. And yes, you are, there is no more isolated piece of granite in the wilderness than the depths of, of depression and, and addiction because you see no way out. I've heard um, substances referred to as lovers for, you know, for the addicts, like at the expense of other relationships, sometimes all other relationships, you kind of protect that one true love because it's been the one that's been kind of standing by you, you know, um, sure. you know, does that, does that, I mean, I, I know you've heard that that term, you know, does it ring true for you? It's very common in addiction literature and advice and so on. For me, um, it was never my lover. It was always my powerful enemy, Hmm. most hated, most feared, and and invincible enemy. But yes, in the fact that it was always there and always for hmm, maybe half an hour would make me feel good, it was something relied upon, but but they tested. Right. Although I, I know a lot of people who, and in fact, in, in a lot of rehab work, people are asked to write a goodbye letter to their lover, their crack cocaine, their alcohol, whatever it is. Write a goodbye letter. So you're right about that. Did you lose relationships during that time, friends and family members? I mean, um well, of course, I know that particularly you, you and your siblings were so hurt and so angry that you turned away from me. Um, I know there's a lot of uh, 
addiction therapy that says, ignore your addicted one, just have nothing to do with them. Um, I think the, 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 cha- the feeling about that has changed a lot. I know that my um, good friend and temporary therapist here, Lisa, never believed in that. She's, and it, that only makes you feel more desperate, more isolated, and just suicidal. But I think when it comes to that theory, ignore the addict, it's when it's gotten to the point that, you know, it has to be the addict's decision to get better. You've kind of had interventions, you've done all you can do. And at this point, you need to just live your own life. So um, I think certainly I think it's certainly valid if the addict is shooting people and robbing people and being in jail and you can't do anything to stop that. But the removal of what an addict needs is acceptance and comfort and and love around, at least in my case, and I know maybe more particularly with women, because women are the ones who most often feel they're never as good as, never can be as good as, even though, as you know, um, my brothers and I were extremely successful academically, socially, blah, blah, blah. Um, it doesn't help that sort of round in feeling. Yeah, I get that. But I guess that's if the addict is still like a primary person in your life. And I know at least for me at one point, like I did have to kind of ignore it because it's, I needed to focus on my young adult life and being in New York city and working. And it just was too much of a, you know, after like years of making efforts towards making the situation better, it was just, I had to throw up my hands and sort of focus on move putting one foot in front of the other and, you know, down the path of my own existence, right? Yes, I, mean, I, I completely understand that. And I think you were right to do that because you had your survival, you know, ahead of you. Yeah, but that's not to say, of course, you know, what you're saying is that that doesn't, that didn't necessarily help you. No, um, it didn't help me. But I wasn't the uh, primary, I don't know, the protagonist in that bit of your story. Right, right. Um you were. Uh, what about now that you're sober? Like, do you, you know, we were talking about that one true love and you, you mentioned people writing goodbye letters. Like, does it feel like a kind of like loss, you know, that that was a companion that you could turn to for comfort at times. And I know for you in particular, that band aid, you know, was, it, it, it was a relatively short bit of comfort. So I don't know that you, you expressed, you didn't exactly have that one true love, you know, it was more like an enemy relationship. Um, that said, it still was a, a, a presence that, you know, at some times could be comforting. Like, um, do, you, do you feel like not having that's a bummer? <laughs> um, I think at first um, I would worry about going, you know, the people, places, things that you should avoid that were associated with your addiction. That's a very common recommendation from therapists. Um, and there were some places that I just I just did not go to, like when I lived in Westchester. We had a wonderful um, book club born of a snowstorm, and people could walk together, and we started that. But there was an awful lot of wine. There was a lot of wine drunk at those things. It was a lot of fun, um, but it was always a boozy event. And I just realized I, I could go to other cocktail parties and not feel a thing. Because so many people today drink, you know, fizzy, period, and all that kind of thing. 
even if they're not alcoholics, um, they choose to. But that particular event I knew was just dangerous for me. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I didn't go there anymore. So that was one way of, of handling that. But even Jeez. what about like not having it at home, you know, kind of waiting for you? I think that now today, the only times I really, well, sometimes, sure, I think I'd love a glass of Chardonnay or whatever, but so more powerful than that is the feeling that I never want to go back there. I never want to lose what I've regained. It's just not worth it. Um, so when, sometimes I think when, when I go out to a really nice, fancy dinner and have some gorgeous meal, yeah, yeah, I'd like a glass of wine to go along with it. But And probably I could do that now, but I don't want to risk that. Yeah. yeah. So how long has it been now? Remind me that you've been sober. It's been a long three, three, three years. Three years. Yeah. Um, so and before, that, before that, Jules, the, there were many times when I was sober for six months or sober for a year. Right. Or, or spent several years as a successful social drinker. So it has not been a constant, but it's been a constant return factor, the addiction. Right, right. Um, th- so this final time has been like the longest consistent period of sobriety. And it's also, I think that finally getting the, the right help, finally going to a psychiatrist who deals with depression and addiction, it was a, a huge relief to find that there was actually a diagnosis not to excuse anything, but to explain it to me and to show me that I could get up, get around this and live a life beyond it. Yeah, well, and going to the root of the problem instead of just treating the addiction, sort of simultaneously treating that along with um, yeah. digging up some of those things from your young adulthood or some of those tragedies in your life. That, like, you've talked to me more in recent years mm-hmm. than than I ever knew about, you know, some of the things that happened. So, you know, it, it, that showed me that there was, like, real work being done. Yeah, it was definitely progress. And, and the thing with this wonderful... Known as Dr. G. I know several people go to him. He's just wonderful. He would force me to say the truth about things that I didn't want to say, about negative things possibly about people in my life. And then he would just hold this picture up for me to see. And therefore, I could have understanding without um, anger or pointing fingers I could just see how I had fallen into these holes and I could see the good things that I had done and the positive things in my life as well. How did you get sober? What, what was, what is it about this time recently that, that has led you to, you know, the greatest success so far, you know? I think it was, it was partly that, that diagnosis and working with Dr. G um, and realizing second thing, I think what, what do I value most in life? And it's my, my family and my relationships. And that, that, you know, love that doesn't come from anywhere else, really. And that, that, I realized that was so much more important to me to, than anything. How? That How I, did you realize that finally? Like, what, what was the thing? I mean, is it the fact that my brothers are having babies? And No, no, it was before that. Oh. Yeah, before that. They, they didn't start having babies until six months ago. So. Well, one of them has a seven-year-old daughter. 
yes, yes, that was a big that was a big help too. I didn't want to, and and uh, Clayton, of course, needed help himself as a single father um, of a mixed race child, and he handled it very well. But he needed support. He needed to know that I was there for him, no matter what. And you can't be there if you're drunk. Right. So, so what do you find? Um, what do you find comfort with now instead of booze? Like, is there, have you come up with other self-soothing behaviors or like what's, uh, you know, or is it just overall this work that's being done? It's overall, but there are more other changes in my outlook on life, my worldview of things. And partly this has come through the group that I go to on Thursdays. And so there's a lot of yogic philosophy in there. So I don't, I don't practice any organized religion. You and I were both brought up as, you know, good little Episcopalians. But I, I do believe there's a universal force greater than ourselves as individuals. I mean, it sounds very cliche. But I have always felt that there are sort of little gods in the trees and the winds and the grass and the animals. And that brings me huge comfort now. My little garden is therapy. And yes, I talk to the bees and tell them they're doing a great job, and I talk to the plants and I ask them what they want. But I've also learned, um, I, I always thought that meditation was this great, unfathomable thing, and, and I was skeptic of it. But I've learned very simple meditation. You just be quiet and listen. Be quiet and listen. And this, when the weather's good, I take five minutes every day to go out in my garden and just lie in the sun and try not to think. What else? I mean, that answers my final question a little bit already, but you know, I think the most important thing here is mom, what have you, what have you gained along with your sobriety? You know, we talked a lot about loss and isolation and, um, but, but now that this, this one powerful, horrible thing has been kicked out of your life. What has, what has entered into its place? Peace. I never thought that I really was worthy of love. And I guess I'm getting teary, but realizing that my children and my friends really do love me. I'm not sure why, but I'm beginning to accept that. I love you. I know you do, and I love you dearly. <laughs> you know that. So, um, and I, I, I reiterate that um, there, there have been so much fun. There's been so much fun and joy and happiness in my life, and the greatest of these was motherhood to the four of you. I mean, that to me, when I think of what you've gained, is like going back to the you know main topic of this episode. Mm-hmm. is that you've kind of regained all of us. Um, yes, and I've regained those rewards and those feelings. And, you know, there are all these little endorphin things that go on when you're happy, mostly when you're making other people happy or helping yeah. other people, I think. And if you're drunk, if you're addicted, if you're severely depressed, you can't do those things and you can't get those things. And I do take a mild um, anti-anxiety. I also had chronic insomnia, I mean, for decades, four, four hours max. So I do take a mild um, evening, you know, sleeping pill, too. 
all, both of the, these are non-opiates and they are non-addictive things. So I'll <laughs> um, just that out. <laughs> um, I mean, that's all the questions I, I have for you. I don't know if there's anything else you want to share or anything you feel like I didn't get to. I, I, I just really hope that anyone who is entering into depression, addiction, you can have depression without addiction, addiction without depression, but so many times one begets the other, you know, or is causative for the other. Um, I'm delighted that there are, are so many more ways for people to be helped. Also delighted that so much of the stigma has been removed. It's still there. It's still there in my generation a lot more than in your generation. But at this point, I'm over that. I, I don't give a damn. <laughs> like, I just need to live my life. And to, to come to that point is an amazing gift. So... Yeah. yeah. Um, I guess I, I guess I thank everyone who has supported me through this. And um, so that's where that is. And I have so much to look forward to. To listen to past episodes of The Lonely Hour or to see what's coming up next, head to thelonelyhour.com. 